everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Brett Crosby, co-founder and CCO of PeerStreet, an A16Z-backed platform for investing in real estate debt with the goal of transforming mortgage finance. Brett is a seasoned entrepreneur with experience building both startups and large companies. He spent 10 years building, launching, and growing products at Google, co-founded, built, and sold Urchin, and co-founded Google Analytics. We talk about selling his first business to Google, building a two-sided marketplace from the ground up, and the future of Peer Street, and end today's session with a rapid-fire round of questions. Hope you enjoy the show. So, hey, Brett, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, we're so excited to have you here. How are you doing, and where are you joining us from? Yeah, great, thanks. Uh, glad to be here. I'm joining you from Del Mar, California, where it's usually quite sunny, but today we've had some strange storms rolling through. So if you hear strange background noise, it's weather. Ah, so far so good though. Okay, so to start things off, do you mind introducing yourself to our audience and talking a bit about how you got into fintech? Yeah, my path to fintech, it was a bit of a uh, circuitous route. My background was I went to USC and I really got interested in becoming an entrepreneur. And then at the time, there was an entrepreneur school there, but it was you, there were like all these kind of crazy requirements to get in, and it probably would have set me back. So I didn't go that channel. I got my degree in international relations and political science, neither of which I really do anything with at all. But <laughs> they did give me very good frameworks to learn things. And uh, so after I graduated USC and, and just kind of mental models to think about uh, how the world works and stuff like that, graduated USC. I tried to start a business with a friend. Neither of us had really any clue what we were doing. But I actually think the idea, which I'm not going to get into now, was a decent one. We were just, it turned out we were quite early. And it was a very good lesson in like timing really matters. And then trying to figure out what to do. And like we did that for like six months. It was like a quick little thing. And what was happening at the time I graduated was uh, the internet was really coming around and becoming a big thing. So this is kind of mid to late 90s timeframe. And everyone was building websites. This website we had built for this business, everyone's like, how did you do that? So I realized there was this market to kind of build websites and tools around websites. Then as we were building these websites, we had all these people asking us, okay, you built this website for us. Is anyone using it and all this sort of thing? And so we started to try to answer those questions. And we ended up building a log file analysis tool that we, we ended up calling Urchin. Side note, we also built an e-commerce tool and like a whole bunch of other interesting tools. Many of those things, had we pursued them, probably would have been really big businesses on their own. We decided instead to really focus on this web analytics tool because we were building all these pretty sophisticated things. We had pretty big customers, Caterpillar, solar solar turbines down in San Diego is a big uh, division of Caterpillar. We had some big hospitals, like fairly substantial customers. And then uh, they were all asking these questions. So we started really focusing on this log file analysis tool. Long story short, it ended up being a web analytics tool, and that's what the industry started calling it. We kind of refocused the business, like reestablished it, refounded it essentially, and uh, sold off the website development part of the business and um, renamed the company Urchin. And that was our sole focus was on web analytics. And I might as well give you the complete history here because it's going to get to where I am today. But And then in 2005, we built up that business and Google came knocking. And we can get into this story if you want to, but they ended up acquiring us in 2005. And then we relaunched Urchin as Google Analytics. I stayed on at Google for 10 years, in part on Google Analytics, in part doing a whole bunch of other things, pretty much across the board at, at Google. 
learned a tremendous amount, really enjoyed my time there. Super thankful I had that time. I left in 2014 to go start Pier Street, which is what I'm doing now with my co-founder, Brew Johnson, who, by the way, was also a buddy from college. And the reason I got into fintech, to answer your question, is that he asked me to join this company. He pitched this business. I said, I really I don't have any clue as to what you're talking about right now. <laughs> and that's not entirely true. I kind of got it a little bit, but a lot of it was was challenging to understand because I didn't have a background in finance and there was a lot of financial aspects. You know, I had some background in real estate, but there's it touches a lot of disciplines and few people are masters at all of these disciplines. And anyhow, so uh, I thought to myself, and this has always been something that's kind of core to me, I can either go learn this space and take what I've learned along the way and try to apply it to think through this space differently as I learn it, or I can kind of like go through my life not really knowing that industry. And, you know, just finance and real estate and all that stuff, it's so, it's so massive and such a huge real estate market is the largest financial market on the planet. I said, okay, I better learn this kind of before I die. And this is such a good opportunity to, to do it. And we were trying to, in the same, at the same time, disrupt this industry. And so I decided to do it. And that was seven years ago. And, you know, it's been a pretty wild ride. And here we are. Yeah, it's a circuitous route indeed, uh, uh-huh. and we'll get into into Pier Street in a second. But one question on the Google Analytics acquisition: It's looking back, it's you know a little surprising that Google didn't have its own version of this in house. Can you just talk about strategic reasoning behind that acquisition and, and how you guys kind of uh, mesh together? Yeah, well, so AdWords had AdWords is the Google's ad platform. It's how you you know buy keywords so that when people type them into Google, your ad shows up. They had something called conversion tracking as part of that tool. But it was a really, really lightweight, quote unquote, analytics product. So interestingly, I happened to be standing at our trade show booth. And it was actually in, it was 2004, when a guy named Wesley Chan and another guy named David Friedberg, two guys who would definitely alter the course of my life and many people's lives, when they walked up to the trade show booth and said, hey, we've heard a lot of good things about what you guys are building. Can you can you tell me about it? And a couple of really important things happened there. I said, I'm happy to do it as long as you guys don't work on conversion tracking. And they said, well, why? And they said, because that's the competing product within Google. And I could see on their name tags, it said Google on it, right? And they said, oh, no, we don't do that. Well, fortunately, Wesley flat out lied to me because he was the product manager for conversion tracking. (laughs) He and I have since became very good friends and he's a fantastic person. So he's not someone who lies, but I think he was just like, yeah, don't worry about it. And because he knew what he was really doing there was looking to acquire a company and he didn't want us to hold our cards back. And he wasn't looking to kind of like rip us off, you know? And he was the other guy he was walking around with was a corp dev guy, which is the department that does acquisitions at Google. And uh, his name was David Friedberg. David Friedberg, as has Wesley, has gone along to do tremendous things with his career and his life. And uh, he's someone worth looking up. And both of these people would be great guys to have on this uh, podcast in the future. I'd highly recommend talking to both of them. But they walked up to me at the trade show booth. They said, love to see what you're doing. And I started to show them. They said, wow, this is really cool. We'd love to talk to you about potentially partnering with you. And I'm like, okay, we're this relatively small company out of San Diego. Here's Google, who at the time, you know, 2004, you got to remember, they, Google's like all over the cover of every magazine. They're like the the darling of all media. You know, they're just Bill Clinton had declared them like the innovators of the century or things like that. Like it was just wild how many accolades they were getting at the time. They were just about to go public. So I said, look, yeah, I'm happy to have that conversation. And they said, maybe you guys can come up here. And um, so I walked them through the product. They said, we're really interested. Why don't you come up? We can talk about a business development deal. 
bring all the appropriate people. And I said, you know what? We're here now. We're at, we were up in San Jose, right by Mountain View. I brought everyone to the trade show who are the most relevant decision makers in the business who you need to talk to about this, including myself, and, which is true. And I brought like a huge team up for that particular show because I really believe in having everyone get, ex- anyone who's building product and setting policy and stuff, interact with customers and actually hear what people want. I think it just changes your mentality a lot. And there's no better place to do it than a trade show where you, all your customers are already there. And then you can see what the other ecosystem looks like and all the other people in it, et cetera. Anyway, and I said, you guys were having the Google, this thing called the Google Dance, which was, anyway, the, the, their annual party they had around this trade show. We were going to be there at six o'clock. Why don't we meet before that? And they said, great, come at four o'clock and we'll have the meeting and then we'll just go right into the party. So we did that. My co-founder gave the best pitch he'd ever given. And uh, they were intrigued. And a short time later, they we actually told them because at the time we had other suitors trying to acquire us. And uh, we said, look, we're kicking off a process. We have these other guys trying to acquire us. If that's something that interests you, we should have that conversation. And so I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when we took the phone call with their answer. And their answer was, yes, uh, we do want to pursue the acquisition. And so that's that's how that happened. That's an incredible story. Let's switch to talking about Pierce Street now for a little bit. Uh, I would love to hear how uh, your co-founder, Brew Johnson, kind of approached you with the concept and, and convinced you to leave Google. What I assume at the time was was the idea of Pierce Street. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sure. So Brew is someone who I've always had a, a deep level of respect for. And he's he's one of these guys that people tend to underestimate because his name's Brew and he's this big personality. But he's a very, very bright guy. And he's a disruptive thinker. And he's one of these guys that actually saw, like Michael Burry, who's an investor in our business now, who was the lead protagonist in the big short, the, both the book and the movie. Like Michael Burry, Brew saw 2008, the, the whole financial crisis that led up to 2008. He saw that coming ahead of time. He was a real estate attorney and he saw people making decisions he thought were absolutely crazy and were never going to work. And he's like, this is a house of cards and it's going to come crumbling down, uh, tumbling down. and the consequences are going to be dire. There are going to be a lot of people hurt from this and the system really needs to be rethought. At the time, it was very challenging to actually change that whole system. And then of course, 2008 happened. Brew had moved on out of the law. He was helping startups. He was he helped his brother with a startup that got acquired by Expedia. And then he saw the technology side of things and he's like, wow, actually, if you could apply this technology to a lot of the stuff that you know, I saw as being a lawyer, like you could actually improve a lot of things, actually make things way more efficient and uh, scalable. And fast forward to 2014 or you know around there and uh, the crowdfunding laws changed and all of a sudden the, all the pieces came into play. So the time to do the business was right then, all of a sudden it all worked. And there was a little bit of like motion already happening in the space with you know with like Lending Club, Prosper, we're doing some interesting things. I know you had Renaud on the, on the on the podcast previously. So we looked at those things and we said, hey, if this is happening with consumer credit, there's actually a better asset class out there, which is actually yields similar to consumer credit or better in many cases. And instead of unlike consumer credit, there's where there's no collateral with short-term real estate debt, there's actually an asset backing it. And which in case your listeners don't know why that is relevant, look, if someone with consumer credit, they can do things like get a nose job or something like that. Well, if they stop paying that bill, it's really hard to foreclose on a nose job, you know? And so with real estate, there's an actual asset. There's a property 
that you know underlying the deal. So if they if the borrower stops paying, you can then go foreclose on the property and then get your money back. And so the odds of losing principal are substantially lower with a loan backed by real estate than they are with like consumer credit where nothing's really backing that loan. And so the point is that you're you're at the end of the day you should be much better off investing in this asset class than at least that was our thinking. Sorry, I can't give financial advice. So I want to be careful that that doesn't sound like financial advice, but that was the thinking going into this. And so uh, that was kind of Bruce's vision. He pitched me with some of that story. The other big part of the story is, look, if we can digitize this space instead of making it all paper-based and we can fractionalize it, meaning that you and I can invest like $100 in each loan rather than the traditional way, which was either a family office or an institution or a wealthy individual would either make the loan or buy a loan and basically own the entire thing, which is like way too high of a ticket price for most people to get into. We could attract a lot more capital to this space. We could make it attractive to many more people. So a lot of it would democratize the asset class. And in the end, it could solve many of the problems that led to 2008. And that's the big thing, which is a bit of a long story. But the short version is, when you get a mortgage through a bank, basically they like to make these longer term loans. Like, why are they 15 years or 30 year loans? Like, no one really asks that question. The reason is, is that they make these longer term loans because they securitize them, they bundle them, they securitize them, they get tranched, and then they go to investors on the other side. Most of those in, uh, investors are institutions, but those the people that are investing in those institutions are you and me. It's like our 401ks and, and things like that. The problem is because the system's so big and so bloated that half the, at least half the interest payment that the borrower is making on their loan is stripped out before it gets to the end investor. Even when you're paying like right now, two, 3% interest, like half your interest payment is getting stripped out by all these intermediaries because the, the system is so complex. What we've created with Peer Street is basically that entire process shrunken down and digitized where we can profitably turn a loan into a security a single loan, like $500,000 loan. And so if you can do that almost instantly, which we can, now you don't have to have 30-year loans. So we've focused on the most esoteric and challenging part of the space, these short-term real estate loans that are one and two and three-year loans. And why does that work from an investor perspective? Because they don't want to be locked up beyond that. The other thing is that space and the yield is generally higher there than it is in you know traditional mortgages, like you know between like, you know, six and 10% traditionally, depending on the loan and where it's originated, et cetera. The other thing we recognized, there was a massive disconnect between capital available to the private lenders who are making those types of loans and then their the amount of borrowers they wanted to service. So they would love to grow their businesses, but they were constrained by the amount of capital they had. They're non-bank lenders. They don't have depositor capital, et cetera. And so there's all to say that we saw a massive opportunity, a major disconnect in the market where if we could build up the capital and investors on one side and offer them an asset class they couldn't get access to before, and then we could bring capital over to the lenders, we could partner with these thousands of lenders that are out there on a nationwide basis and really create the plumbing to make a much uh, smarter system and more connected system. And in the process, build something that could potentially long-term disrupt the whole securitization system. I saw that you had written about creating a two-sided marketplace in the past. And I think a lot of two-sided marketplaces in theory are a great idea, but it's daunting to try to balance supply and demand, especially early on in the company. I would love to hear how you approach that balance at Peer Street and how that's kind of evolved as the company's grown. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. So we decided 
that a two-sided marketplace was the right model for us early on. And I will say, I will admit, I don't know if anyone else would admit, somewhat naively, because I don't know, it just seemed like the right model, but you know, I don't think I understood how challenging it was to build a two-sided marketplace going into it, especially with a bit of a long-term asset class. Like If you have a, a two-sided marketplace where two parties can transact and you build this marketplace for that to happen, that's great. But when there's a, first of all, if you have a high ticket item, it makes it harder. And our average loan size for investors is about $500,000, maybe slightly less, but just for simple math. And they typically last about a year to 14 months is probably our typical loan term that an investor is actually in a loan. What that means when you're building a two-sided marketplace and the challenge of that is especially in the beginning. And the two-sided marketplaces are awesome when they work. They're amazing because they're notoriously hard to start, but on the, on the, on the flip side of that, they're also notoriously hard to stop. And once they get going, they get that steam going, they can be these amazing engines of growth. What adds challenge to it is if people are locked up in those investments and they're high ticket items, both of those things we have with our asset class. And so that was one of the things I didn't fully appreciate, but thankfully I didn't because I might've thought of doing something else and it's worked in this space. I will tell you in the beginning, the way we got over that kind of initial hump to get enough capital in the system, enough loans on the, on the other side to balance it out was we started this thing called Operation Flywheel. And the idea was let's get a bunch of loans that had only like three to four months left, if that, and then line up investors ahead of time, or at least some investors and say, how much will you take out of this? And then when we put them up on the platform, they invested, other people saw those investments go up and come down, and then they paid off, more capital came back. And we started adding loans, a few loans you know, a week, and then a few loans a day. And then all of a sudden, we were just off to the races and they were faster than we could put them up. People were, had capital waiting to take them down. It got to the point where we were doing you know, millions of dollars you know, uh, in loans and they would come down in, in a matter of minutes. And that's still the case now where you know, we put investments up and they just get taken down very, very quickly. And so what we're in the process of doing now is continuing to ramp the supply side of the market. And that's what our prediction going into this has turned out to be true, which is if we get enough capital and demand, then the next problem will always be focused on the supply side of the equation. That will eventually become the constraint. But in the early days of the business, it was all these lenders are like, yeah, I would love to have more capital. So I'll sell you these loans and you can put them on the platform. But that has since flipped. And so now it's a matter of continuing to unlock supply. Um, but as we grow, we're building tools now to, to really focus on that. And a lot of engineering and product effort is making lenders more efficient, onboarding lenders more efficiently, onboarding loans more efficiency, uh, efficiently using uh, AI to like to, you know, we have things that will scan the loans and like populate all of this information for us internally, just so like things just go almost real time or as close to real time as we can get is the, is the longer term vision. Got it. Um, I was on your website earlier and I saw a quote on there uh, that said, when you invest at Peer Street, you're investing in more than just loans, you're investing in people and communities. And I thought that was great. And I would love to hear, just have you expand on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great question. And it's something we're really proud of in the work that we do. It's, it's really easy to see and focus on the participants on, the, on a two-sided marketplace. But What's really cool is when even non-participants benefit from the existence of the platform and the growth of the platform. And I'm sure there are many other examples of that. I'm, I can't really think of any at the moment. But in our case, 
the obvious participants that benefit are investors. They get yield when they invest in a loan, right? Basically, you invest in a loan and then you get whatever the note rate is that's paying you, whether it's, you know, let's call it 7%. So if you put in $1,000, you'll get uh, $70 back at the end of the day. But ideally, you build a portfolio and more and more and you kind of are investing in that. And then you can build like a 7% return over time. And I'm just throwing out numbers. It's your individual results may vary, obviously, depending on which loans you invest in and how they perform and all that. But that's the idea. So clearly, there's a value for investors. And then the capital goes to lenders who make more loans to borrowers. And the more capital they have, the more borrowers they can go after. And and this is going into the borrower's side. This is who really benefits here is when the borrower and who are the borrowers for this asset class? These are like real estate entrepreneurs like you or me who would go out there and say like, hey, there's this crummy house on this block over here. I want to buy this place. I want to fix it up and then I'll either sell it or I'll put a tenant in it and rent it out. And we can handle both of those. We can make a loan uh, or our lenders will make a loan for the first part well, the, uh, where it's called a bridge loan, where they'll buy the property and then fix it up. And then we can also do a, a buy to rent loan. And we have institutions that will do those up to like 30 year loans. So we can handle both parts of that now. But Okay, so those are all the participants that clearly benefit. But the non-participants that benefit are these communities where if you think about it, if you have this house, you know, it's coming up on Halloween here. If you have this <laughs> crummy house on your block, that thing's going to be the haunted house the whole time. And everyone has one of these in their neighborhood when they were a kid growing up. There's been this like crummy house. It's like, oh, don't go there. That's the that's kind of the haunted house. Well, if you get a lot of those, your neighborhood starts to go downhill pretty quickly, right? And look, there's a total housing shortage right now in the United States, and it's been in place for a long time. Well, you can either take over green space, which we're going to have to do anyway, and like take over more space to build more housing, or you can go in and fix up the old existing housing stock. Most of it uh, was built before 1970. It's like 60% of the U.S. housing stock was uh, built before 1970. You can go fix that up and then repurpose it. And that's what our borrowers are doing. And when that happens, everyone that I just described gets the benefit. But if you do that once in a neighborhood, it improves the neighborhood. If you do that in a community, like 50 times, which we have single borrowers that do that, you can change an entire community and turn it around. And we have, you know, I've met with some of our borrowers that do that in East Los Angeles, as an example. And these are neighborhoods that they would be going downhill, et cetera. You know, it's like, there'll be like a house that turns into like a a drug house or something got foreclosed on by a bank. And like some people, like shady characters are now living there or like made it their like hideout or whatever it is. And these guys will go in there, they'll buy the house and they'll completely turn it around. And within six months, you've got some, or a year, you've got some young family moving in and all of a sudden, like this crummy place turns into this nice place. And that improves the entire neighborhood and then changes the entire community when you do that. Not to mention, they're buying supplies at local stores, bringing in business to local restaurants with all the workers they're doing. You know, it's just this really, really positive impact. So that that's what we're doing. That's what we mean by improving communities one house at a time. And we've done now over 10,000, we've had loans on over 10,000 properties now. So it's not like onesie twosies. We're talking about pretty good scale at this point. That's amazing. And I bet that's very fulfilling to actually get to see in person uh, after a few years of, of working with the company. It um, is. You, you'd be surprised. Like, you know, yeah. so, so many times you don't actually see that stuff in person. And when you actually go out and mm-hmm. do it, and you hear from borrowers firsthand. And then they talk about their life journey and stuff and like what they've been doing. And some of these people, this is like what they're intentionally doing. They're like, yeah, they're making a profit. Don't get me wrong. It's not pure altruism, but they have this idea of like, look, I, I grew up here. 
And I don't want to see this turn into a like go downhill. I want to see us like build up as a neighborhood and they're turning these neighborhoods in the right direction and, and uh, not letting them go kind of negative. So it's pretty cool. Uh, last question on Pier Street is just uh, where do you hope to see the company go in the next you know six months to two years? What what major goals do you have for the company? Yeah, so uh, the current roadmap is all about building out tools both for investors and for lenders and continually. So we started by building out the marketplace from the investor side, and then we onboarded a whole bunch of lenders. But a lot of that side was was fairly manual. We've now made that much more automated. Build a lot of tools for lenders. So. Uh, we have a long, long list of cool features and products that we want to roll out both for lenders and for investors. I'll give you an example. We launched this thing called Peer Street Pocket recently, which basically uses the same loans, but it basically allows individuals like you or me to go on the platform and invest in this warehouse line that we would have to go buy loans. And we used to have to go work with a bank to like get these warehouse lines. And we still have those from some large banks. But we thought, you know what, instead of just doing that, let's continue to allow individuals to invest in these types of things. So we created Peer Street Pocket so that basically they could fund a warehouse vehicle for us to go buy loans. People can do that. It's a short-term investment vehicle. And then we put those loans up on the platform. And they're only held in there for a short period of time. And people get to participate in the interest from those loans while they're held there. So those types of innovations, there are lots of financial innovations that are possible through the platform that will allow people to participate in ways they just never could before. So those types of things are, are where we're headed in the uh, kind of immediate future. And then longer term, you know, we want to keep making this asset class as similar to being able to buy and sell stocks as possible. So one of the big blockers in that is when you buy a stock on the public markets through like New York Stock Exchange, for example, or NASDAQ or whatever, it's got liquidity. So you can trade in and out of that position at will. And that's great. Having that a healthy secondary market in place for our asset class would allow for that as well. And once that happens, all of a sudden term, meaning how long you're in the investment, no longer matters because you can pick and choose that. That's a long, long road product for us because there's a lot of regulatory hurdles for us to be able to make it fully where you can trade in and out of your position at will. And you have to it's basically building a, a, a second secondary market because, or, or a second two-sided market is a secondary market where uh, once you, you know what I mean? So you have to like get enough participants in that system to build it up. But as you do, and if you unlock that, term no longer matters. And if term doesn't matter, why are people paying different interest rates for shorter term loans than they are for longer term loans? Like it really changes the equation on this entire ecosystem and really the industry. So that's one of the innovations that we're working on and may actually launch before this podcast is launched, or at least the very early stages of that. But the very early stage is like kind of a toe dip to get us started, but where that can go can have really, really profound impact on the, uh, on the industry. And zooming out uh, even further, I would love to get your thoughts on uh, what excites you about the fintech industry overall, uh, say over the next three to five years. I mean, look, the fintech industry is just this amazing thing for a couple of reasons. I mean, the obvious things is no offense to my friends who work at banks and, and you know places like that, but banks have been a pain in the neck for a long time for a lot of people. And part of it is, look, it, it, you need financial regulation. Those things are absolutely needed. You need to protect people to a certain extent, but really they haven't kind of kept up with the times as far as ease of use and things like that. And that's why things like Venmo have, have been able to take off. And I think the disruption of financial markets in that way, just making it much more consumer friendly and providing 
this is a, a second point here that is really motivational for us is providing access and making many, many more asset classes accessible to individual investors. We just see that as, as core to our mission, but also just like something that fintech in general is an entire industry uh, has really gotten right. And is it's a pretty profound and important thing. And that's a huge change from where we were 10 years ago. I mean, there's been so much more access. The third major thing, obviously, that you know you have to talk about when you're talking about fintech and disruption and all that is everything that's happening in kind of the crypto and blockchain spaces, right? Like there's just so much innovation happening there. A lot of it seemed like something I would describe as a solution looking for a problem. But if, if you look at the arc of almost any major technology, it often takes about 20 years. And, and I think now those times are compressing, especially for something as powerful as blockchain, is those problems are being found very quickly. So these are solutions of like, hey, we don't like how the current system works. Let's rethink it. Let's totally rethink currency. Let's rethink how things are, instead of having things super opaque and you know, we'll have them ultra transparent. You know, it's 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 major disruptive thinking being applied to financial systems. I think that whole that whole space is so exciting and so interesting. But where are we in that process? It's hard to say. It feels to me like we are in sort of 1999 going into the dot com era, where there's like these crazy valuations for some of the businesses and technologies involved, and there's probably a correction happening that will happen at some point for some of those things. But does that mean the fundamental technology and things like that, or even the coins themselves and the price of the coins will change? I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I'm not. What I do think is that these are foundational technologies that things will get built on. And if you take a longer term view of things, there may be the web bands and the pets.com and, or whatever it is, those, some of those like major.com, you know, bubble things that, that died. But look, now we have Amazon delivery and we have all of these things. Like so many of the dot-com promises actually came true later. And those ideas were not harebrained schemes. They were just ahead of their time. So back to my original point, timing is crucial for a lot of this stuff and understanding timing and getting prepared. So one thing I would recommend to anyone who's listening to this, who is thinking about being an entrepreneur or going to business, learn as much as you can about everything that's going on. Don't have a super narrow view of any of this stuff. Try and have a very broad view, understand what's happening. You may see businesses explode in a good way and then explode in a bad way where they, you know, the outcome is very bad. Doesn't mean the idea was fundamentally flawed. It may have just been a matter of timing. And, you know, like I saw other companies do this before, like Yelp, the idea of reviews was not a new idea. What did they do differently? They made it so it was all user generated reviews. And so anyone could say anything. That was the big twist that they did. And they built a multi-billion dollar business, you know, I mean, and they had really good execution and great people and, you know, all of, the, all of those types of things, but they recycled an idea that had been around for a long time. They just put a little twist on it and made it better. And so once again, timing really mattered for them. And I think that's going to be the case with this space. So I would, I would definitely be aware of fintech. I would be looking closely at a lot of these things. And the other thing is this space is so massive that anything that happens here also has to go be applied to all these different places in the world. And there's so much good that can be done by providing more access to these types of technologies and um, much more a global financial system would be very beneficial to a, a lot of people. Uh, I would love to wrap up today's session uh, with a rapid fire round of questions. Uh, we aim to get answers here in about 10 seconds or less. Uh, are you ready to go? Let's go. Let's do it. Uh, favorite Google product other than analytics? 
Honestly, I love all Google products. The ones that I can't live without are probably like Gmail and Calendar and Google Docs, all of which, and Chrome, all of which I worked on at my last two years at Google. So I love mm -hmm. those teams, but in reality, I use all of those products every single day. So really can't live without them. Mm -hmm. uh, favorite holiday? <laughs> favorite holiday? Uh, hmm, I think I'm going to go with Thanksgiving because it's sort of like the winter holidays, but uh, without all the concern if people are going to like the gift you got them or not. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or another form of social media, or none? Uh, don't forget LinkedIn. Honestly, I use all of those all the time. And if anyone wants to reach out and link in with me, please do. It's Brett Crosby on LinkedIn pretty easily. I use all of them pretty much daily. Love it. Uh, what interview question do you always like to ask? Uh, the one I actually ask is, what do you do for fun? And the reason I ask <laughs> that is, you know, I obviously interview for the hard questions as well. But I do like to know people on a human level, and I always find that that's where you end up connecting with people. You can either do it on an intellectual level, and you can get lucky and stumble across something like that uh, in an interview question. But when people, when you ask them that, they get to actually kind of relax a little bit in an interview and give you a little insight into their personal lives and kind of what they're into. And um, it doesn't matter if it's extreme skiing or something like that, or Dungeons and Dragons. It's like, great, we've got people in the company that love any of those things and teams that are doing those types of things. And so we can, it, it allows you to kind of like understand how this person can fit into your company beyond just the, the role that they're playing. And I believe so heavily in building a good culture um, that to me, that's actually quite interesting. Got it. And last question today, Brett, is what do you do for fun? <laughs> well, I... Uh, build startups and I find that incredibly fun and engaging. I advise a lot of startups, but I think that you would probably bucket that as work. But if your work is fun, hopefully it is fun, but that's kind of a, that's kind of a BS answer. So I will tell you what I do for fun. Fun is look, I, I walk my dog on the beach. I try to do that twice a day in the morning and the evening. And in between, if I can get a surf or a mountain bike or a road bike or something like that in, those are the things that I, I really do for fun. And by the way, when I walk my dog, I'll like usually put in my headphones, listen to a podcast like this or listen to a book or something. And I'll do that on, uh, on the bike or if I'm driving or whatever as well, because I also think just constantly learning about new industries and uh, from other people, I find that incredibly fun. I think that pretty much wraps it up for today, uh, Brett. But thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, incredibly insightful answers about you, about Pier Street about your views uh, on, on investing. I uh, really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Warden FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.